Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 2nd, 2018. It's a Thursday, and this is episode 2263 of the Survival Podcast. On Thursdays, we have the Listener Calls Show. I've got a bunch of great calls, seven of them, in fact, lined up for you today. I got a follow-up call on the working remote question I did a while back on negotiating the best salary, whether working remotely or otherwise. And I think that's a, you know, we talk about skills on this show and about survival, not just uh, in the wilderness, but surviving modern life. Negotiation skills are one of the most important things lacking in most Americans' skill set. It really is. Uh, We also have a, a question today about spreading the seeds of responsible gun ownership in children. How to overwinter peppers. Yeah, you can do that. It's not really that hard. Uh, question on making elderberry syrup. Uh, a question for family-friendly ducks and chickens. Uh, we have gardening under oak trees. And how do you actually calculate how many days of food you have stored? You know when I say like you should have at least 30 days of food stored up. And then really like 30, 60, 90 is the plan. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll go deeper into this when I get here, but I believe this is how most Americans should approach preparedness as a whole. It's a numeric progression that has no no uh, no algorithm behind it. It's just the way we think. And it sort of does have a numeric progression. Here's what it is. It's 3, 7, 14, 30, 60, 90. 3, 7, 14, 30, 60, 90. And when we get to that 90, meaning 90 days, we're as prepared as most people are ever really going to be without going to the extremes and trying to get on TV shows. And it's really not that hard to do, and there's a lot of good reasoning for it. And one of the cornerstones of being prepared to to, to be able to survive that long without outside inputs is food. And I'll say some things that won't even be popular with a lot of real survivalists when we talk about food and how we measure that. That'll be our final segment of today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. I've been doing these while David Byrne is on hiatus. And uh, today, on this day in history in 1972, Jack Spirico Jr., that's me, was born. Yeah, I'm 46 today. today. So um, I've, I've always kind of paid attention to like, what happened on August 2nd. The thing I'm actually going to cover today is Iraq invading Kuwait because, well, I'm part of that history uh, in a way, and I think many of you are. And as we get older, it's it's odd to look back at history and go, yeah, I was there. I remember that. Um, But a lot of stuff happened on this day. Now, I wanted to take a moment since it is my birthday and since so much stuff went on, give you a list of some of the things that happened. In the American Revolution, on this day in 1776, the delegates actually signed the Declaration of Independence. I actually believe that August 2nd should be our Independence Day. Not just because I was born on the day, but it would be cool. It? But, I mean, seriously, like you can say whatever you want, but the day that the delegates actually put down a signature and made it official was today. Um, a lot of other things went on. Uh, in 1865, the, the CSS Shenandoah learns the war is over. 
This was a uh, Confederate ship in the Pacific, uh, basically out privateering uh, Yankee uh, whaling ships. And a British ship found him and like, hey, uh, stop doing this stuff. Uh, you're going to get in trouble and the war is over. Um, there's a lot of other things that went on. Some of them were pretty bad. Like Hitler became Fuhrer on August 2nd in 1934. Einstein in 1939 urges U.S. atomic action. So the kind of the real kickoff toward the Manhattan Project and the atomic bomb really had its genesis with Einstein. Um, in 1943, in the middle of World War II, Japanese forces attack a PT boat with John F. Kennedy on board, the famous PT-109 incident. In 1964, North Vietnamese torpedo boats attack a U.S. destroyer better known as the Gulf of Tonkin incident in History Channel. I'm not sure you got that phrased right. We claimed that happened, and it escalated the U.S. involvement with the Vietnam War. In 1971, ironically, uh, also with the Vietnam War, uh, Nixon administration acknowledged a secret army in Laos, that we were you know, outside what we were supposed to be doing. And on the same day that... Hitler was named Führer, president of the Weimar Republic, Hindenburg, died also in 1934. So a lot of things happened on August 2nd, other than old Jack being born. But in 1990, I turned 18. I had already joined the United States Army. I was 17 years old when I joined. I had to get my father to sign a piece of paper to allow me to enlist. And... Uh, I really was like many people that joined the Army in 1990. Ah, it was a job, you know? You're going to get a job. Like, you didn't even think about going to war. With the, Latin, we, we, you know, with the exception of something like Grenada and small police actions, the U.S. had not engaged in a direct conflict since the cessation of activities in Vietnam. And America pretty much had decided at that point, we don't want to do this whole war thing anymore. If you really think about the, the history between 1975 and, and, and 1990, we, we had pretty much a, you know, we're, we're, we're here to fight the Cold War. That means that we posture, and we could see that Cold War coming to an end. And, you know, 88, 89, 90, people that joined the military were like, it's a job, it's an adventure, but we're probably not going to war. And on my birthday, Iraq evaded Kuwait. And I knew that everything in the world had changed right away, especially for someone who had listened to the United States Army. And uh, if, you, if you really think about it at that point there, even though there was an end of that war really, really quickly once it really kicked off, this entire chain of events that's continued right up to present day, right up to present day, began on that day. The U.S. entanglements in the Middle East escalated. The, the, the second Iraq War would have never happened without the first. The U.S. intervention in Afghanistan would have, would have not happened probably without the first uh, Gulf War. That's what set off uh, Osama bin Laden. We, we have continuously mucked things up in that theater. And I know that history goes way back from there of us screwing around, and we should have learned a long time ago, when, you, when every time you touch something it gets worse, stop touching it. But this entire modern age of warfare, where we have children serving in the military now, 
that were in diapers on 9-11. This entire cycle began on that day and our chosen response to it. And uh, I'm not really going to say whether I think our chosen response is good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying history is what it is, and this is what happened. And like many of you, I was there for it. And before we get to your calls, I kind of want to use that as a, a jumping off point for a little bit of the TikTok speech that I give you guys once in a while. I usually do that on the first day uh, of the month or the last day of the month. You know, that's that kind of drives home. We've passed another month. It went by like that. It's gone. And uh, if you look at this, we are now much closer to Christmas this year than we are to New Year's of this year. We're way past the halfway point. It's hot as this blazes outside, but you'll start to feel it turn, even though it'll have hot days. You'll start to feel it really begin to turn in about three to four weeks. And then another three weeks after that, on the 21st of September, we'll have the, the fall equinox, first official day of fall, and you'll really begin to see it turn as the day sh sh truly begin to perceptively shorten toward the winter solstice, December 21st. And this is time marching on. And for me, being my birthday today, that's even more evident. I'm now 46 years old. When I started this show, I was 36 years old. We've had more than a decade now together at TSP. And... I want to just take today and thank every one of you that's been part of it at any period in time, but especially those of you who have been here since the beginning or very near the beginning and are still here. That is the the greatest compliment I could ever receive from somebody, that you'd spend 10 years of your life paying attention to what I'm doing. It, it's kind of crazy. I, I've said this before uh, when we had our guest uh, Jessica Mills on, when she was talking about you know young people listening to me walking on the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Rim Trail, etc., And there are there are teachers from Pottsville Area High School that knew me when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And if you told them that today's generation was listening to me, they might just jump out of that fifth floor window of Pottsville High School and just end it. Um, but fortunately, I think it's turned out pretty good overall. And I think that's because I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. And that's what I want for everybody that listens to this show is whatever that thing is for you, I want you to find it. Because I want you to realize our time here is fleeting. I say often, make the most of your dash. It's interesting that when you call it a dash, it describes what it really is. What I mean by that, for those who maybe not heard me talk about this before, when you die on a stone somewhere, maybe an obituary online, somewhere there will be a place where it'll say, You were born on such and such a day, and you deceased and left us on such and such a day. And in between those dates, there'll be a hyphen, a dash, right, a minus symbol. Dash is what I like to call it, because what does dash mean in another way? We call it the 50-yard dash, the 100-yard dash. A dash implies that something's quick. It's fast. Now, if you're measuring how long it takes to run 50 yards over a human lifetime, I guess that's not very fast. I guess we don't think of things going fast when we measure them with a calendar. There was an old joke about the Fiat uh, back in the 80s. That was the one little Fiat. Uh, no, the Pontiac Fiero. The timed in the quarter mile with a calendar, so you insinuated that it's slow. But as we get older, we start to realize how much of a dash that little hyphen in our life really is, how fast it really goes. 
Ten years ago, my son was still in school. Today, I'm a grandfather with two grandchildren. Ten years ago, I lived in Arlington, Texas and drove a little Jetta every day up to Frisco and did this show with you. Today, I sit here on my little three-acre farm in Azle, Texas, and the, uh, the sabbatico to Arkansas lies in between them. Remember when I used to say, coming to you from, uh, from high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. A lot has happened in those ten years. And in some ways, it seems like it's been a very long time. In other ways, it seems like it's been nothing but a dash. So today, as I cross another you know, annual event, and I, I, I'll have to say right here, all of you that wish me happy birthday and all, I, I do appreciate it. I thank you. I don't make a big deal out of my birthday. I don't, I don't have a big deal about it. I, I don't really see, in the words of Dr. Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory, I don't see being, actually I think it was Leonard that said this, in his home, being expelled from a birth canal was not an achievement. And uh, I kind of believe that, too. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. Other than it is an interesting marker. It is an interesting reminder to make the most of what you have. So as you guys go forward with me on the next 10 years of this adventure, take the things I say to heart. Do the best you can in your life. And above all, when people say, what is the one piece of advice you would give? Find your thing. Your thing that you were meant to do. And do that thing. With that, let's go ahead and get into your calls. Our, uh, our first call today is on negotiating a salary, specifically from the viewpoint of working remotely, but negotiating salaries in general. Hey, Jack. Daniel here from just north of Houston. I'm following up on my question from a couple weeks ago on working remotely. I do really appreciate your insights on that and everything that you do for the community. So my question has to do with certainly working remotely, but as well just in general how to go about negotiating salaries. So the details is, as I've been looking at some other jobs, you know, a lot of times you have the, oh, well, what do you make at your previous job? And I've read different approaches on how to just go about that, but it is also frustrating because it's like, well, it's really kind of irrelevant. Yes, I want more money, but there might be benefits that depend otherwise on whether or not that salary matters or has to match. So anyway, so I guess I'm curious on your thoughts on how to go about negotiating that and how to handle that when they ask you that question and uh, how to just, yeah, how to go about that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, specific to the question, how much are you making now, the the answer I'm going to give is one that a lot of people aren't going to like. It's basically a lie. Um, here's what it means when someone says to you, well, what are you currently making? It, it means two things. One, can I afford you in the first place? Because if, if you walk into a position, and, I, and, and the most I could pay you, no matter what I think of you, is let's say $65,000 a year. That's that's my limit. There's nothing else I can do. If I go back and beg and grovel to my higher up, they're going to tell me to piss off. 65 grand's all I can afford to pay you. And and you, you walk in and I and you, I say, "Well, what are you making right now?" and you say 95,000. I know that I'm probably not going to even take this interview anywhere without kind of telling you, "Look, man, we're we're topped out here." Now, if there's something that you're, you know, really excited about working here in future, but I, I, I can't touch your rate. 
that's one side of it. And that's good, because if you lie and you want a little bit high and they give you that number, then you know the most they can pay you, and your negotiation from there really depends on whether or not you're willing to work for that rate. Um, if you went really stupid high, then it could backfire where they go, well, there's just no reason to talk. But I'm not suggesting you do that. The other reason the person asks this is what they're, they're thinking if I want to hire you, and either I've already made that decision or I'm, I'm, I'm just going to figure this out before I even make that decision. If I get to the point where I want to hire you, how much are you going to cost me? What, what, what is it going to cost me? What am I going to have to come up with to get you to move? Because in general, people don't move for the same money unless they're really unhappy. And I may uncover, if I'm a good interviewer during the interview, that you're unhappy with your current job for whatever reason. Uh, there's a lot of times where people will move for, for the same money or even a little less. One would be they, they want to move. The, the, where they are is geographically undesirable, so I may accept less. Um, if, if I am getting a benefit like getting to work remotely, I may be willing to take less, uh, especially if I can now move and do some geographic arbitrage. So there are reasons I'll take less, but most people do interviews kind of get hardwired into this concept of, can I afford this person, and what's it going to cost me? You know, how, how much am I going to have to pay to get them on board? So what I generally suggest you do is you make what I call a defensible lie. You need to figure out what your job's worth. You need to figure out what your job's worth. And what that means is you need to figure out the value of your job with benefits included, something that I think most of our government school teachers should do, by the way, uh, to, to understand how much they're really being paid. But what I mean by that is you need to figure out, well, add your vacation time into that. Uh, add in uh, insurance. What is your company paying for insurance on you? What is the total value of your benefits, including maybe the ones you're not taking advantage of? Let's say that your, your company uh, does a dollar-for-dollar dollar match on 5% of your income. Well, even if you're not in, in, investing 5% of your income, that's still in your salary package. So a lot of people say, well, you're getting kind of loose with this. Yes, I am. But I'm going to come up with a number so that the person that walks in the door that's making, let's say, 65000 in a paycheck, their benefits and all might be eighty. You know, what they're really what they're really being paid. Now I have a defensible lie. How much are you making right now where you're at? $80,000. I can also say it with... With, and sound like I mean it, because I do. I'm answering the question, what is your job worth to you today, $80,000? A lot of times, they're not going to go deep into how you came up with that number anyway. You could really pull any number out of your ass. Well, that just became their mark. They now feel they need to pay you that the way that most people answer that. When you add up your, your gross pay every year, how much is it? So, that way you send that down. Now... If you get into a position where they start asking you, well, really, and, and you feel that you need to disclose, well, no, this is the value of my job. I base it on benefits and everything else. And by the way, you should like that because that means I appreciate that coming from you as well. And it's a totally legitimate thing. Let me explain to why it's legitimate. Let's say I'm offering you a job for $50,000 a year, and we pay full health insurance, and you have four kids. Somebody else is offering you $50,000 for basically the same job, and they don't provide the health insurance. Which job would you take? Well, you take the one with the health insurance. Why? Because whether you accept it or not, you know in your heart that if that, that employer is spending $800 a month 
to provide you with insurance, that's $7,200 a year, right? But it's actually more because a lot of times maybe your employer is paying $800 for that family. For, but if you, what would that insurance cost you? That same plan, if you went out to buy it, what would it cost you? And if the answer is $1,000 a month, that benefit being paid to you is equivalent to $1,000 a month. By the way, the people with those huge insurance packages that are worth more than $20,000 a year, all the union guys that were for Obamacare, guess what they're fixing to start doing at the end of 2018? They're fixing to start paying income tax on that shit as though it is income. So you see what I mean? Even the government's saying, hey, this is income. This is income. It's an expense for your employer, that makes it, and you benefit from it, that makes it income for you. So you get that number in your head and you give them that number if they ask that question. If they don't ask that question, you don't bring it up unless you bring it up strategically. When you get to the point where they're like, well, what will it take for you to come here? You say, well, you know, I'm looking to improve a lot of things in my career progression. And you guys offer and name some things, you know, some things that I'm really interested here, this, this, and this. You know, I do have a family to take care of, though, and currently I'm making about $80,000 a year. What can you do for me? And shut up. I hate being the first one to name a number, but if you're boxed into it, that's how you do it. I, I, I much prefer them to give me a number first. Because the number can be really good, and I'll go, yeah, that's that's Okay. That's an awesome answer. That's not no. Just, yeah, you know, that's, that's all right. I, I can consider that. You know what that says? I don't need you. You need me. This is the thing. I've, I've talked about this subject before. You will never have more power in negotiating for yourself than the day before they give you the offer letter. You need to push as hard as you can on that point. And then if they give you a final offer... What you say is, even if you're going to say yes, could I please take a day to discuss this with my family and consider it? Because, number one, you're going to go work for this person now. You don't want them to feel like the whole thing was bullshit and you were going to just say yes anyway. Number two, you should go think about it and discuss it that final day before you say yes. And number three, they're going, shit, I wonder if there's anything else I can do. Then the other thing is, since you want to work remotely, you can use any shortfall in the income to negotiate your employment circumstances. You know, if I were able to work remotely, say it's a job that didn't going to let you initially work remotely. If I could work remotely three days a week, let's say I was in the office on, you know, whatever two days of the week you think are most important, I could do my job from home those other three days, I think I could make this work. I would save money on commuting. Uh, it would be much more convenient. I could be more productive for you, too, because I wouldn't be wasting that time in traffic. Or if I could do this job remotely, period, I think that number would work. So you need to always be asking for something in a negotiation. You always need to be willing to give. Because let's say it works this way. Well, we really don't do the remote working thing. You know, for me to move, if I'm not going to be able to improve my, you know, my, my, my working environment to work remotely, I'm going to need significantly more money than I'm making now. In other words, here's your that's a pretty ball you have. Let me hand it back to you and see if you can figure out what you want to do with it. Because now they have a choice. They can either give on one or give on... You've just said, I'll give on either one. But 
you're going to have to get on one too because I don't work for free and I don't take pay cuts without a clear reason. You understand, like, so the problem with with all of this is I could write a 500-page book on it and not cover every scenario. On some levels, you have to think on your feet, but that's the basic principle, that understand that you have more power than you'll ever have the day before they hire you. It's always a good idea to leave that the, the situation a little bit open. You know, in, 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 in Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, there's one point where he talks about how a person made an offer that was actually a reasonable offer. I don't remember what it was for or whatever. But let's say it was like $2 million. And his response was, $2 million? That was, and he didn't say that. And then the guy came back with a different number. And he said, you know, $2.2 million. That's all he said. I'm not suggesting you do exactly that in an interview, but it ended up being something like he, he, he was able to move this thing up something like 10% just by repeating what the person said. Not by saying there was anything wrong, just by repeating the number letting them hear it back. And I actually could see that working in an interview. Okay, so I'm going to come here, leave behind my current job for $80,000. I'm, I'm really going to have to consider that. It's a fair offer, but you know, I'm, I'm making a transition for a lot of reasons and, and, and improving my family's life is one of them. And one of the ways I do that is, is with money. Shut up. Is that exactly what I'd say? I don't know. It depends a hell of a lot on the person that's sitting across from me. And, and you have to look and you have to read their body language and how bad they want you. Remember, and I'll, I'll sign off on this segment with this, the key to getting the best offer you can is the mind of the person you're interviewing with should be, I do not want this person to go work for my competition across town. I'm scared of this person. Now, not every job can do... You know, if you're, if you're trying to get an entry-level position at Walmart, all this shit's moot. You might be able to get 50 cents out of, uh, you know, or something, uh, an hour, uh, a little bit higher by being a little bit more on your game with your interview, but it's a pretty formulaic thing, and they're going to talk to 100 people today, and they don't really care if you don't get the job. But when you get to any level of, of skill and capability, then you need to really sell yourself. And the most powerful word in sales and marketing is no. And what are you doing when you're, when you're looking for a job? You're marketing yourself with a resume, with phone calls, with contacts and referrals. And then the interview is where you go from marketing to sales And you're selling yourself. And sales is what? A transfer of belief. You cannot transfer what you do not have. So you need to convince yourself, however the hell you're going to do it, I don't care if it's looking in the mirror three times and screaming at yourself, whatever it is, that you are the best person they're going to see for this job. So you believe it in your heart. And then you transfer it to them. And then if the offer is not reasonable for that, you say no. And sometimes we don't say no directly and abruptly where we shut down the relationship, you say, I'll have to consider that because I'm not sure about it. I'd really love this opportunity. Whether you would or wouldn't. See, do this shit even when you know you're going to say no. Because then you'll, 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 you'll throw your, I hate to put it this way, you'll throw your balls on the table. Like, boom, there you go. Right? When you already have made a decision like from talking to the guy for a little bit, like, I'm not going to take this job. There's nothing this guy could do. 
then then go full bore with what you want. That way, if you went too far, you'll figure it out. If you didn't, you'll know what to do when you actually want the job. It's about experience. So use interviews to build interview experience. That's something most of us never do is build experience in interviews. The more experienced you are as an interviewer, the better you're going to negotiate. And I'll tell you what, that mythical pay gap between men and women, it does exist to a degree. And ladies, let me tell you something. Your lack of willing to push back and negotiate harder is the main reason for it. Your concern about, and this is everybody, now, not just women, your concern about what other people make is a big reason for it. What the other person makes has no bearing on what you're going to make. It's good to kind of know that people in this company at this wage are somewhere in this area, and this is a median for it, so you can kind of know what you're dealing with. But what Joe Blow and Joe Jane Blow make is irrelevant to what you get paid. You're not them, and they're not you. Have confidence, push back, be willing to say no, be willing to say, I'm going to need to think about that, and be willing to ask for things other than money, and you'll do really good in negotiations. And one more time... You'll never have more power than the day before they hire you. Let's take another one. This one on Kids and Guns. Hi, Jack. How can I capitalize on opportunities to inform and exercise with kids about guns? Details. On my friend's property in upstate New York, I was shooting mice with a BB gun when some of the kids who stayed there for the summer came by to watch. Well, the kids made noise asking questions, and the mice were not coming back, so I thought it might be a chance to talk to them more about guns. I designated a little range, gave them some lessons on range etiquette that I recalled from my IDF days, and let them shoot some BBs. I focused on safety, recalling your advice about airsoft guns for kids, and teaching them to treat it like a real gun. What more can I add in future opportunities to help these city kids gain the awesome respect and love for guns people like us share? Thanks for all you do. Matt in upstate New York. You know, when I played sports as a kid... There were times when uh, you'd always go to your coach, what could I have done better here? What could I have done better than there? And, and and the times you really know you did good is when he would you know, finally say, you did that exactly the way that you were supposed to, and you really couldn't have done it any better. And that's kind of how I feel about what you just described. I mean, they're not your kids, so you can only go so far with this. Um I do think it helps if you have the opportunity to speak to the parents of children uh, when they get exposure like this to, you know, uh, if possible, I, I always like before I let a kid near a gun, even a BB gun, to get permission from their parents. This may have been so impromptu you, you couldn't have, but, you know, if that comes up, then you can always say, hey, you know, would you be okay with this? And, and a lot of times you'll find, well, I don't know. I, I, I very seldom have heard, absolutely not. And, and when you deal with that, you want to know that's what you're dealing with because that's the person that's going to be really miserable with you if uh, – if you do it without them knowing it, and their kid goes, oh, I got to shoot a gun. Um, and they'll come over thinking he was shooting a fully semi-automatic assault clip gun that fires ghost clips at 1,000 ghost clips per second or something like that because those people exist, sadly. Um, but I find a lot of times it's an opportunity when you talk to, like, so in this case these were strangers kind of, but like your kid's friends, parents, and realize that, that they don't really know anything about firearms or guns at all. And in doing that and, and saying, listen, I, you know, and I'll tell them my background. I was in the military. I grew up hunting and fishing. I know safety. I am religious on safety. Trust me, if there's a danger from bringing a new shooter near a gun, it's not to the new shooter. It's to the person working with them. If I in any way 
lacked confidence that your child was not mature enough for this situation and would not listen to me and follow my instructions to the letter, I wouldn't risk my own safety or the safety of my kid. And that usually puts them at ease. And if they do let you, then take the kid to the range. And that kid comes home, and it was great, and I did this, and I did that, and I targeted, look at this, and I hit that, and Mr. Spirico told me that, and he said I could go again. Do you know what usually actually happens? They don't always follow through on it, but in general, I found most of the time that parent will come back to you and go, well, maybe we could go sometime. See, I think there's, there's a reality sometimes in memes, even though a lot of times memes are stupid. And one was, you know, you're afraid of guns or something like that. The guy says to this other person, and yeah. And like, well, are you afraid of cars? And the guy's like, no. He says, well, why not? He goes, well, I learned how to drive one. And the guy's like, exactly. And I think that there's a lot of people, their fear of guns doesn't stem from the liberal hysteria on TV. Now, that, that does not help. That does not help. But it mostly stems from ignorance. And, and I don't mean ignorance in a negative way. I mean it in the most positive way possible. I am ignorant as to how to build a rocket ship to go to Mars. I don't have the first faintest freaking idea how to do that. I'm ignorant to that. Now, my ignorance, if I cared enough to find out, could be cured, right? But ignorance and fear go hand in hand. When I don't understand something, and if that thing at least I believe is dangerous, in this case it is, a gun is dangerous. There's no doubt about it. So if I have ignorance but I have enough knowledge to know that that thing can be dangerous, I have a lot of fear. And what people generally, now there are the complete nutbags, but in general people's fear with guns is, I wish I understood. I wish I understood, but for one reason or another, I haven't given myself permission or had the opportunity to fully understand. So when they see someone that's a peer to them, and when you have a kid and you have friends of that kid, the parents see you as a peer no matter where you are professionally from each other, income-wise from each other, because you're both doing the same job when it comes to raising children. And I find that parents that take their kids shooting generally have a pretty good relationship with their children. Because if you, if you don't, you're probably not going to put a gun in your kid's hand. Right? So they also, when you take a kid shooting into the range, you develop a certain relationship that involves, I say you do. Right? I say and it's a dead serious relationship. Well, even though you might not have that level of compliance from your child, hundred, you know, 100% of the time, it's really kind of reserved for those situations. It will translate. It does make a better parent-child relationship from a standpoint of, hey, I'm serious right now. Oh, that's dad's range voice. He is serious. I better pay attention. And parents that see that, like, man, I wish I, especially when they observe their child following your direction that way without you raising your voice or being mad about it. Like, what the hell? So they, they gravitate towards you. And then you become that source of knowledge that they lack, that cure to that ignorance. And I think the strongest thing you can do to encourage kids to become responsible gun owners is to encourage their parents to be open to the idea or active you know, responsible gun owners themselves. And the best way to take somebody that's, that's, that's not pro-Second Amendment and make them pro-Second Amendment is get a gun in their hands at the range in a very safe, controlled way where they understand how serious you know, 99% of gun owners are about safety 
and about using guns for their intended purposes and not for their unintended purposes. And flat out, there is a certain feeling of power that comes with a gun. You realize what an equalizer it is and why our founders were wise enough to say, hey, this is a fundamental human right. Because back then, guys, at the beginning of this country, that little old lady that lived out in the middle of nowhere, that gun is what protected her from people who just wanted to take what she had or her. And that was an equalizer. It was an equalizer. And that equalization is as powerful as training and knowledge and skill. And we need to make sure we're seeding that in others. So I guess that's like the next phrase of what you could, phase of what you could do. What you did in that situation, if, if it was like a class project and I was your instructor, you'd have gotten an A-plus and ruined the curve for everybody else. That's how good that was. With that, let's take another one. This one on uh, peppers, like you know, peppers you grow in your garden. Hey, Jack, this is David in central Indiana, and I had a question regarding overwintering pepper plants. Details. Um, previous episodes, you had mentioned that peppers are actually perennials uh, where the climate allows, and obviously being in central Indiana, uh, our climate does not allow for that. So if I was to dig up and pot a pepper plant, what would be the lighting and watering requirements needed to overwinter the plant and get it started in the spring? Uh, it would most likely be stored in the basement. Uh, there is one window down there, and I do have some um, indoor lighting for plants available. But I was just wondering what lighting and watering requirements would be a uh, need to overwinter the plant, as well as any pruning or cutting back that would uh, need to take place as well. Thanks again for any details or insights. So you, you can definitely do this, and you do want some supplemental lighting. You need to understand that this plant is not going to look really happy with you during this period, no matter what you do, unless you go like full-on grow tent and what have you. So... The best course of action, if you're going to do this, is to plant some of your peppers in some sort of portable container. What this will allow you to do, obviously, is move the plant indoors for your winter without disturbing the roots. However, I've seen it done, and peppers are actually pretty remarkable in their ability to handle transplant, even when they're not happy. Because I've had peppers that, like, I've had planted somewhere, and you just look, and they got, like, yellowing leaves and all, and you're like, that's just a bad spot for them. And uh, I'll pull this out, and i got to, you know, instead of trying to fix that spot right now, i got an empty space over here that's really nice and fertile and moist and being taken care of, and all the other plants are happy. And you pull it out of the ground and stick it in there and, and, and throw a little fertilizer on it. And in a couple of days, it turns around and starts going gangbusters for you. So they'll handle it, but I'd prefer not to if I don't have to. Um, yes, you want to prune it back, probably by about 50% of its size, assuming that it's a sizable plant. And expect that as it goes into this artificial light environment and it's not really happy, it's going to like, it might even drop all of its leaves and only have a couple, or it might drop all its leaves and a few new ones will pop out. As long as it's alive, you're good. As long as it's alive, you're good. Now, what I would recommend is leave it outside until you know you're going to have your first frost. 
But make damn sure you know and, and err to the side of safety. So if you're not sure it may or may not freeze tonight, bring the damn thing in. When you have like an Indian summer that goes two or three weeks, put it outside in the sun if it's not going to freeze. Because I remember a lot of times, even in Pennsylvania, very cold winters, we would get that. My, my, my father and my uncle always call it Indian summer. And a lot of times it would be weird. It would come like... Between Christmas and New Year's, you get like a week of like really nice mild temperatures without going below freezing at night. And then January would come and then, you know, winter, and then you might get another, you know, two weeks but somewhere where it's not bad. Down here in Texas, you know, we get, we get the opposite. What you guys get for some Indian summers, we get that as our winter actual freezing times. So... You know, I would I in, in my climate since it's so intermittent, I want to bring my stuff in only when it freezes and then put it back out when it doesn't. And so in the spring, if you can have a situation where like let's just say you got a garage where it's not gonna freeze in there, and your 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 nights that it still goes below freezing are going to be um You know, few and far between, and you're talking mild freezes, 29, 31 degrees, something like that, and you're, you're done with your, your temperatures in the teens for the year. Get it outside again, and I'll just pay attention to the weather, and on those nights, bring it in the garage. Why? Because we're going to put as much power into it in the fall as possible, and we're going to start the new growth in the spring as early as possible. Because what we're doing is we're taking a plant, instead of coming up from a seed that we put in, the, in, in a little cup in February and try to cultivate into this plant, We're coming into you know our spring with this heavily rooted shrub. Because I think that's what most people don't realize is that peppers are shrubs, especially a lot of people in northern climates, you know, they've never seen a pepper plant get that big. I grow pepper plants here that I swear to God they get four foot tall in a single season because I have this long growing season. Well, if I cut that plant down to two feet tall, and it, it what's gonna happen, it's gonna get really bushy when it comes back. And every place you, you prune that branch, when the new shoots come in, you know, they're going to come back just like trees do, like when you top a tree, and they're going to coppice out into multiple shoots. And you get that, that bushy shrub shape. You get a very resilient pepper, and you get a very high-yielding plant. Can you do this in the north? Well, uh, Brent from Prince Edward Island has peppers. I know he's been doing this five, six years with the same plants. Peppers are a mid-term, mid-to-short-term perennial. In their native habit, a, a pepper bush will live somewhere between five and twelve years, and they can live longer. You know, in in parts of Florida, the towel peppers are kind of like a, a local, like phenomenal thing. Well, their peppers are available year round because they live where it doesn't freeze, so the, they just never die and they just constantly produce. So, I mean, peppers are a tropical perennial is the way to look at this. And that's, that's your best way to do it. As far as lighting, you know, it needs some light, but it doesn't need enough to make, you don't have, unless you want it to produce through the winter for you. In which case, you need like a 300 water higher grow light in a grow tent. You know, if you want multiples in there, you can get one of those robot arms and move the light back and forth so you don't have to buy multiple lights. If you just want to overwinter it, something like a 45-watt Kingbow light that I recommend, the, the 12 by 12 square uh, lights that sell for less than 30 bucks, uh, that hung up right above it. Now, if you want to do this in multiples, you kind of need more than one of those. One of them will do maybe two to, two to four plants, depending on how you arrange it, because they need enough light to get enough photosynthesis to kind of go through a dormancy, but still, because they're not... 
they're not like a tree, right? They're not going to completely shut down all the way. They're, if they would do that, they would be perennial outside of the tropics. They need something to take them through. Basically, a version of a tropical winter, a, a, a period where they kind of just rest, but they don't go to sleep like, a, like an oak tree does, if that makes sense. And uh, you give them that, they'll be all right. So you might consider, depending on what lights you have, if you want more than one of them, to do something like T5s or T8s because they're long. And obviously you can line them up. What I've got going on this year, I built one of those uh, grow be- gr- uh, bucket uh, gutter, grow, grow gutter, grow bucket, whatever the hell Larry Hall calls it. You take basically a rain, rain gutter grow bucket garden, whatever. You basically take a piece of 10-foot rain gutter, Put caps on it, put some two by fours on the sides of it, take your five gallon buckets and drill holes in them for a little net pot, three inch net pot, stick them through the bottom and set them in the, the, the rain gutter and plumb water to it with a float valve, fill it up with topsoil and plant into it. And then your, your stuff wicks up into that bucket. Well, what I'm going to do this winter, I'm going to keep them in the garage. And I'm just going to take, they, you can set them in a center block, turn so the holes are up, so there's a place for that net pot to go so you don't mess things up when you set it down. I'm just going to set them all on some center blocks or jack up some 2x4s or something for them and then just move the whole base into the garage and uh, throw a, a fluorescent light over them and overwinter, nine of them fit in there. And I'll overwinter nine of them that way. And all I want them to do is be good enough. And the nice thing is I can do them right by the door, And then I can just open the garage door on nice days and let them get actual sunlight. So they might do really good for the winter for me. But I don't expect that they will do super great because the shorter days and all, they do kind of go in a semi-dormant state. But that's how you do it. Anybody's been doing that, I'd love to hear from you in the comments. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on elderberry syrup. Hey, Jack. I want to see if you had a uh, good recipe for like an elderberry syrup that you would recommend or use uh, coming in the fall and wanting to Get, get our elderberry syrup going. Just kind of looking for a new recipe. So we generally use dried elderberry. Any help would be appreciated. Have a great day. Well, um, my, I remember this makes me think something my grandfather used to say. I'd say, well, everybody says that. And he'd say, well, that's because it's true. Um, so you want to, you know, my recipe for elderberry syrup. And I, I got to tell you, it's, it's not much different than probably what everybody else's recipe for elderberry syrup is you mentioned using dry elderberry so i'll give you the elderberry measurements in both i don't tend to use dry elderberries i grow my own uh and i pick them with the freezer method which is i throw them in a five gallon bucket and throw the five gallon bucket in a deep freezer i cut the whole stem with the whole cluster and uh, they freeze solid and then you take them out while they're frozen you smack them on the side of the bucket and they all just fall off You don't get your fingers, and then you dump them into a bag and throw the bag back in the freezer. And since they're already frozen, they don't stick together, and you can take out however many you want. But if you use dry, cut the number down to a half a cup, and per cup of elderberries, fresh, or half a cup dry, this is what I use. And it's again, it's pretty much what everybody uses. Uh, three cups of water, one ounce of ginger root, um, Shred it up. I use those on a like a cheese grater, like a box grater, to to get a real good emulsion of them. Uh, two cloves, one cinnamon stick, and this is again. I I do not believe in ca- calling cassia cinnamon. Celion cinnamon, real cinnamon, has a, a lot more value from a medicinal stance uh, to me. So and one stick of Celion cinnamon, uh, or as I call it, true cinnamon, and then you're going to need one cup of either honey or sugar. 
And to me, I'd rather use honey. And it's because of all the wonderful things in honey. While I'm trying to make something that's, that's healthy and immune building, why not use honey instead of cane sugar? But if you don't have honey or whatever, you can use sugar. And then the way to do this is put everything except the sugar or the honey into a pot and bring it to a simmer and simmer it usually for about 30 minutes to whatever amount you have is reduced by half. So you're going you're gonna to boil off half of the liquid. Now let me tell you the easiest way to do this. Get yourself a, a spoon, uh, a knife, like a butter knife, anything like that. Throw a rubber band around it. Stick it in the, the, the liquid and push the rubber band down to the level of the liquid. You see where I'm going with this. And then just set it aside. Set it on a cutting board because it's been an elderberry goop and it's going to be purple. Right? So set it on a cutting board or a plate. And as it starts to boil down, just take that measuring stick now and you can see halfway between that rubber band and the bottom of it and stick that back in there. And when you get to that point, you've gone down by half. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out and remember how high up was it on the pan or whatever. Just simple. So now you know you're down by half. Once you're down by half, mash it up real good. Um, an old school hand potato masher works really good for this. You can use one of them squeezy things that swivels it through or whatever. I just you know, mash it up. I've done it with a spoon, but if, if I can find it in the drawer, I get that potato masher out. Mash everything up real good after it's kind of cooled a little bit so you don't get it on yourself and hurt yourself. And uh, let it cool down to where you can handle it. So you still want it really warm, even a little bit hot, but where it's not dangerous to work with it anymore. And pour it through a, a, a colander. And I just I don't really try to get every single speck out of it. So I don't do cheesecloth or nothing like that. I mean, it stains the hell out of anything, right? So just a, a fine mesh um, strainer. Pour it through there into a jar or a bowl or something. And then add your sugar while it's still warm so it'll dissolve your honey then. That way you won't have stickiness and burning and stuff in your pan. And with the honey, you're not going to boil off all of the really great things in the honey. So then you mix that up. And you, you put it into a jar or a bottle and put it in the refrigerator, or you can can it if you want to. I prefer just to keep it in the refrigerator. It'll keep for months in the refrigerator. I've seen people say it's two weeks. Oh, you're out of your mind. Uh, now, one thing you can do to make it keep longer is, again, try to, try to get the sugar incorporated while it's still pretty hot. Go ahead and put it in your ball jars. Put a standard ball jar you know, lid on it with a ring as though you were going to can it and get it into the refrigerator, and it's kind of like a poor man's canning. It's not going to be shelf-stable, but it is going to seal up that jar. Like when you go to open it, it's going to give you that vacuum thing. So if you make up two or three jars, you know, use one jar till it's empty and go to the next, that will extend the life cycle of your elderberry syrup. Uh, it's pretty easy to make, so you can make it any time you want to. Now, that is pretty much what everybody does. I do have a secret ingredient, I guess you could call it, or something like that. Um, it's chamomile. And chamomile is really easy to kind of annihilate all the wonderful things that are in chamomile from a medicinal herbal standpoint and from a flavor standpoint. And chamomile, if you, if you drink chamomile too, it has like a buttery thing that really when you use honey with elderberry syrup, it accentuates kind of this buttery flavor and mouthfeel, almost like there's... Like there's almost like there's a little bit of butter in there, but without the fat. It's weird, and in a good way. So what I like to do is everything that I said, and right when you kill the heat and you're not boiling it anymore and the simmer drops, 
throw about four tablespoons of chamomile, whole chamomile flowers, like you'd make tea with, in at the end. Give it a stir and, and let that temperature come down, and then go ahead and strain it. So you're basically making a, a chamomile steep into it at the end, um, and that way you you don't annihilate all the beautiful stuff in the chamomile. And uh, I, I find that that is, you know, like that little something extra maybe you were looking for when you asked me, but in general it's the same thing that everybody that makes elderberry uh, syrup makes. Basically, what if you look into it, what you'll find is that cloves and ginger and cinnamon are all also immune boosters. And if you if you start looking around, well, like what else could we throw in there, like everything in the kitchen sink as far as immune boosters? None of them really would go good in an elderberry syrup because then you get into things like, you know, Echinacea or uh, uh, garlic and onion and rosemary and thyme. Those are actually really good immune boosting herbs when done in the concentrations. But, like, if you think of like uh, elderberry thyme syrup, I don't know, maybe it would work, but I, I, don't, I don't really think so. Uh, elderberry and rosemary, maybe you could throw a little rosemary in there. I would, I would test that theory. I would make a, like, a, a, a a strong rosemary tea or concentrate, and then you know, add a couple drops to it. Uh, but if you wanted to add those immune boosting herbs, taking off of our uh, thing, yes, I'd make a tincture like a garlic, rosemary, and uh, uh, thyme tincture, and then take that tincture with your syrup. I don't think I would try to cram it all in there because elderberry syrup is a great immune booster and a great thing for you know dealing with cold and flu uh, but it also tastes good on things like waffles so I really don't want to ruin the flavor profile of it uh, it also makes pretty good mixed drink too you can use it as a simple syrup uh, in doing mixed cocktails as well so I don't want to ruin that capability by making it all garlicky with that let's take another one this one on uh, family friendly poultry hi Jack this is Paula in Pennsylvania what would be the most family-friendly or pet-friendly breeds of chickens or ducks? Here are the details. I have a friend who has three sons, ages 10, 8, and 6. The 10-year-old is on the autism spectrum. They had an opportunity to foster three turkey, baby turkeys, until they were old enough to be on their own. And this had a very positive effect on the uh, older child on the autism spectrum. The family's now thinking about getting a couple chickens or ducks. They do have water on their property for his sake. But it would have to be something friendly and quiet because neighbors are close by. Any recommendations appreciated. Thanks. Um, when you first said that they did turkeys, uh, I was like, oh, boy, I hope this didn't go wrong, because when they get older, they can get very aggressive. So apparently this was probably like fostering some wild poults or something, and they got up to a certain adolescent stage and they went away. Uh, so that's probably good because they're not exactly family friendly. They do get pretty aggressive and um, they tend to identify those that are afraid of them and be more aggressive with them than others. Like the ones we've always had here, those broad breasted bronze, they never came after me. Uh, sometimes they'd peck at my legs and stuff, but it was more playful. Uh, but they would go after Dorothy and definitely the kids. So I'm glad that didn't happen. 
The the issue, though, moving to something like chickens or ducks, is there's going to be a, have to be a lot more husbandry, not to keep them so much friendly, but to keep them, I guess the word for it would be cuddly. Uh, you know, I don't want to say friendly because friendly just means they don't come after you. What I'm talking about is the ability to have them be approachable. So one of the awesome things about keeping turkeys is they don't run away. I mean, you can walk up to them. They come right up to you. They hang out with you. I kind of miss my turkeys because, like, the ducks were cool and all, but when we had turkeys, you know, I would be working, and all of a sudden I'd hear some sound. I look, and all of them are standing there like, hey, what's going on? What's up? Hey, you going to walk around and kick some of them grasshoppers up for us? Like, they, they, they hung out with you. Uh, and they, they did some goofy stuff, too. Like, one time I was out planting seeds, and I had a bag of seeds, and the one of them kept trying to get it, and I made the mistake of putting it down. He picked it up. This is like a 50-pound turkey. Picks, uh, yes, yeah, seriously, 50 pounds. Picks this bag of seeds up and realizes I'm going to come get it. And I had to chase this damn thing like 20 yards till it ran into a fence because it wanted to get away with the seeds. So they're fun like that, and they don't have they don't have a lot of fear of people. So the thing with chickens and ducks is they tend to have a lot of fear of people. And you also want quiet. So I'm going to try to give you, in my experience thus far, with a bunch of different breeds and types, what I think would be best. From a standpoint of an actual quiet duck, nothing beats muscovies. Muscovies are quiet. They go, ha, ha, ha. that's the sum total of the noise they really make. And the hens will make a little chirp sound once in a while, uh, but in general, they're, they're completely quiet. Um, they are also very strong. And if picked up when they don't want to be, they their claws are like little raptor claws. They can open you up. So you'd have to make sure that there's enough uh, understanding with the child and his state that we can control that. Um, but I've also not found them to be where you can pick them up. Like they, they generally, no matter how tame they get, they're not pick-upable birds. They don't want to be picked up. They'll hang out with you. They'll be very social with you. And they're one of the most agreeable poultry on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. But if you want something you can touch, they're probably not your animal. The only true duck that is generally quiet that I know of, you know, the mallard-based ducks, would be Welsh harlequins. They're beautiful ducks. They do quack, but they don't rat, 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 rat. They make kind of a little chirpy, singy sound, and they're really cool. And if you get them as ducklings, and they're constantly handled and they're treated like pets, they'll probably be approachable if not handleable, right? But ducks are not generally the animal that, no matter how well you treat them, can be picked up. And let me address something. Everybody's probably seen the little rowan duck that looks like a big mallard. Uh, with the little boy that he's in love with, and every time the boy comes home from school, the duck is waiting and excited, and it greets him, and it goes in the car with mom, and it's waiting for the little boy, and it loves the little boy, and it's so cute and so adorable. It's not cute, and it's not adorable. That duck has anxiety disorder from being separated from his only thing that makes a flock for him. Ducks are not solitary creatures, and it, we sold a lot of ducks over the years. We didn't really need to sell a duck where somebody would contact us and, do you have any ducks or so? No, we don't do that. I have one duck. I lost its mate, and it's miserable. And we'd be like, will you take a drake? Yeah, okay, then we'll give you a drake. Just come get it, because I understand. And as soon as you got two ducks again, they're happy. They need to be together. And once they're together and they see to themselves, they tend not to be super friendly to people, in my experience. If you're dedicated, 
to where the ducks are being handled and they're sitting in laps and everything from the time they're babies all the way up until they go outside. They may get a little bit better. We've done that. And the, the other side of it, though, is we always had a flock waiting for them out there, and once they get in their flock, they amalgamate, and they're all the same. Chickens. This is actually where I would go. And for gentle, friendly, and if handled as chicks, and you got to be careful when they're chicks with, with, with a kid that may not have control over how much physical exertion he might exert, because they're really tiny as chicks, they're like the size of quail as chicks, bantam cochrans. That's what I have in my aviary. They're the sweetest little chickens. They do kind of run away from you a little bit when you're in there, but if I bend down to pet them, as soon as I get my hand to where they know I'm going to touch them, they just kind of squat and wait. You kind of scratch them on the back and pick them up. They throw them on your shoulder. They don't bite. They don't get aggressive. They're quiet for chickens. Every once in a while I go out and I'll hear what an egg's being laid. But it's nowhere near as loud as full breeds, and they're cool looking with their little feathered feet. And you might be able to talk to people around you and find some grown ones that are already calm and tame that maybe have outlived their, their, you know, their cycle. And uh, the only issue is it's often hard to find bantams that are sexed. Um, they can be very difficult at times to find sexed bantams. I believe I got mine. I'm not sure, but I believe I got mine from Cackle Hatchery. And there were several different breeds or color schemes, I should say, of Bantam, Bantam Cochran's uh, that were available sexed. And so the, you don't really want a rooster in this situation, right? Uh, if you have ducks, you know, if you had three or four Welsh Harlequin uh, ducks and a drake to go with them, I think that would be fine. It is the duck I would use. If the desire is to have the ducks around and the kid be able to see the ducks and feed the ducks, and all, if you want to pick something up, I'm going to say go with the Bantam Cochran chickens. And I'm sure I'm going to hear from other people, Bantam this, Bantam. In general, Bantam chickens are friendly chickens. And I've seen a lot of chickens that are friendly, full-size chickens that might be better in this situation. Buff Orpingtons. They're, they're incredibly friendly birds. Plain old sex links, red sex links. I've always seen to be pretty friendly birds, you know. Um, but they can be noisy, even without a rooster. They can, you know, that, that cluck, 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 cluck. A lot of times they get upset about something, or when like I said, one will be laying an egg, and the other one will be encouraging them. It's weird, and that type of thing. And I, I just find the bantams tend to chill on that. I've heard bantam silkies are really gentle birds, but I've, I've never worked with them, so I really wouldn't know. Bantam, uh, bantam Cochran roosters. I know somebody going to say, ah, a great, friendly one. My only experience with a rooster was when somebody threw over my fence, and that bird was friendly when he got here, and he wasn't clearly a rooster yet. He was clear enough that they knew to get rid of him. And by the time that bird grew up, he was a jerk. He was a little Napoleon, and he's lucky somebody wanted him because he was going to be a, 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 what do you call it, a Cornish hen on the freaking grill otherwise. Um, so I, I'm not going to say that if, if you go the rooster route, but I... I'd say, you know, off the hook, like two to four, and, and I'd, I'd hate two. I hate two. There's always losses. And then you have an animal by itself. I like four. I like six. I like numbers like that because when you do have one or two, you lose. You know, I had four uh, Cochran's. I have three now. Uh, my, my, uh, my speckled one, my pretty one that I really loved, uh, she died. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe it was just the heat. But hopefully that helps you. Uh, let's take another one, this one, Gardening in the Shade. Jack, this is Bob in Lano, and I have a question about gardening uh, under 
large oak trees. I'm wondering how far into under the drip line can I bring uh, like a raised bed for a garden? Uh, the details, we're buying a house that has two very large, magnificent live oaks in the backyard, in the back, each of the back two corners. And I'm wondering how close to the trunk of those trees I should garden or disturb the soil in any way. Um, appreciate your comments on this. Uh, keep up the good work. Bye. Well, you probably can do it with no real problems. Well, let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, most people treat trees poorly and don't give trees what they think they need. They mulch the hell out of them. They make volcanoes around them, and that's just awful. Trees are best with the with the crown of the the roots fully exposed, and as their roots spread out, some of their roots being right up to the surface and having almost nothing on them underneath the tree where they're shaded, except what naturally falls there. And if there is any mulch, it's out toward the edge, and it gets thinner as it goes in, with the opposite of what most people do, where they start out thin and they go in thick and they pile it up against the trunk and they rot the bark off the trunk, and it's just not good. So you're thinking the right way. The trees you have, live oaks, are some of the toughest trees in Texas, with one exception. They do become susceptible to something called oak wilt, which is like tree cancer. Uh, and it can be reversed, but it's usually almost impossible to reverse. And good, exposed, and well-aerated roots are critical in preventing it to keep the tree healthy. So I wouldn't want to get way up under there for more than one reason. Number one is you don't want to mess with the root system. Number two is you're going to overshade your garden. You're going to have too much shade. Now, Lano, Texas is like here. It's dad gone hot, and shade actually is a benefit. What I would want to do, if it will work for you, is I would want to be on the eastern side of those trees toward the outside of the canopy so that you get sun all morning long and then you get shade in the afternoon. That is like the Goldilocks zone in Texas. The other option is to be toward the southern edge of that canopy and get sun most of the day uh, early in the year, you're going to get less and less as you get into the summer, and it gets higher and higher overhead. So coming out as far out toward the edge of that drip line as possible, you know, make a shadow map and make sure you're getting some full sun during the day. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 percent is considered ideal. Uh, in my experience here in Texas, around 50% is more than sufficient. So if sun's hitting the location for half of the time during uh, long days, so the longer days, and the winter's a totally different situation. In the winter, if you're doing a winter garden, uh, being on the southern side, you may get sun all day because that sun's lower, depending on the house and whatever else blocks your shade. So I'm going to tailor this more to the shade than the roots because... If you go where you're really going to cause a problem for your root system and your trees, you're going to have so much shade, you're probably not going to be able to grow damn near anything anyway. Because, um, you know, you can't even say, well, I'm going to do that, I'm going to grow winter crops. If they were, you know, pin oak or, or you know, uh, chestnut oaks or white oak or something like that, where every winter they drop their leaves... Well, you know, you could do a, a, a fall, winter garden, spring garden underneath them and just not garden in the summer. And, and that actually is not a terrible strategy in, in Texas. Um, but they're live oaks. They're evergreen. They don't drop their leaves. So I, I'd be more concerned about the shade and solar aspect than the root disturbance. But definitely um, 
try to give them what they want. You'll notice if you go into the forest, you get a lot of leaves in the fall, but you know by spring, a lot of those leaves are rotted, and it's fairly thin humus layer uh, or mulch layer, and it's more of a humus layer that the roots in are in forests. That's what we want to mimic for trees on our properties. We better off without grass going all the way up to them and things like that. How do I get grass to grow under a tree? Stop doing that, dummy. It's shaded there. It's not supposed to have grass. That's why the tree shaded itself. All right. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Let's be our last one of the day on food storage. It's a great question. Hi, Jack. This is Marcus in Phoenix calling. My question is, how should I calculate how much food I have in my storage? Details. So I've got canned goods, I've got dry goods, I've got macaroni, I've got things vacuum sealed. How do I calculate exactly how much food I have as in length of time? So if I need to have 30 days worth of food, do I use the calorie intake? Do I use number of meals? How should I go best? How best should I go about calculating how long I have with the stores that I have? Thanks, Jack. Love what you do. So it's a good question. At one time, I kept this stupid spreadsheet with cal calories on hand and stuff like that. I just think it's it, it's it's out of your mind too much. It, it, it's not really practical. It's an exercise in futility, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, the, the reality that we have to face here is that most of the food that's long-term storable that we you know store without refrigeration even when we're following it, we store and store what we eat, makes up only a portion of the food that we eat on a daily basis. It's uh, you know, it's the canned food, it's the dry goods, it's the pasta, the beans, and rice and stuff like that, and maybe some long-term storables from a, a company like Mountain Hauser providing, providing pantry in uh, number 10 cans or something like that. And even though we do eat what we store and store what we eat, that kind of stuff we tend to only use maybe once a year to get a little bit of rotation in it and get some experience with it. The best thing to do is just make a list of everything that you have and that you maintain in your pantry on a rotational basis and all your long-term storage. And say, if I had to make meals out of this, how would I make meals out of it? Just start making meals. Like writing down what you can make and how many you can make, and you figure out, oh, I could go 30 days on this, and you got 30 days. Three meals a day for 30 days, you got 30 days for you know four people, two people, whatever number in your house. That's, that's the primary way to determine what your actual longevity is. Then we can back up and talk about, in practice, what is our longevity, because unless we have like a storm that blows our house down or something like that, Most of the food that we have in a freezer or refrigerator is going to be just fine during a disaster. Especially if we get ourselves a little generator, uh, an inverter for our car, store some gasoline and things like that. Uh, you know, we can, we can go weeks if we have to. And, and this, this concept of preparing for the end of the world as we know it from a standpoint of we're going to hole up for a year, I just don't think is is really a valid way to live in 2018. It doesn't make a lot of sense. The sacrifices that you make to do it are not worth the gains that you get on the other side, in my opinion. So I can I include in my stored food food that's in my deep freezers because I'm gonna eat it. And it's stored. It ain't going nowhere. And so I think that that should be taken into account. And then we come up with a new formula. However long that food will last is how long we should be able to run that deep freezer. And that's a hell of a lot easier to work out. 
Yeah, you can figure out I need to run that deep freezer for five hours a day. This is how much it takes to run my little Honda EU 2000 generator for that. This is how much gas I need. Well, you don't have 90 days worth of storage because, look, no, the, the hell I don't. See those gas cans over there numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to 12? Yeah, it's, it's, it's August today, so I'm going to take the number 8 can. I'm going to dump it in my, my car, and I'm going to fill it back up and stick it back in that line. I got 60 gallons of gas right there. That runs a freezer for X number of hours. That's that many. You see what I'm saying? And, and when we do that, then we are preparing to deal without the electricity that, so that the food stored in the freezer can continue to be stored. And, and try to incorporate as much as we can into what we're doing. And then look at things like production from our gardens and stuff and factor it in that way. So that's another way to look at it. And then I think the other way to look at it is, of the storables, how many days of those do I have? That's, that's a completely different way to look at it. You could have a much bigger number. What I mean by that is, so if you have storable food and you cook with it, but you, you cook steak or chicken or something like that, How long can you go with only buying the chicken, the steak, the fish, and having the storables already, you know, anything that's storable already accounted for? That's another good way to look at it because that says to you, if I went into a thing like one spouse loses a job and all we have to do is buy the meat, it is the more expensive component of the situation, but we wouldn't have to buy all this other stuff. How long could we go? And you might find that that number is, you know, six months if you have 90 days of, of actual stored up food from a standpoint of being 100% on it. And, and that's the way to prep because, again, we, we, we come at this from the inverse relationship that as far as I know, I'm the only one that talks about this particular inverse relationship, though after 10 years of doing it, I imagine others might be doing it now too. And that is that the, the less number of people affected by an individual disaster, the higher the odds are that you'll be affected by it, which is exactly the opposite of the way all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, crazy prepping people uh, talk about this stuff. They're all worried about the U.N. invading the United States. It ain't going to happen. They're all worried about a global pandemic. It could happen. It probably won't happen with the severity that they're talking about. And if it does, you probably can't be as prepared as you think you can anyway. So let's get prepared for the, the most logical things. So these global disasters are, are actually some of the least likely states of disaster that we would ever experience. But losing your job, having your spouse die in a car accident, having your house catch on fire, localized flooding, localized uh, ice storms that knock out your power, these are things that happen to people every day. So we, we plan for those, and in those situations, unless our particular home is gone, a tornado wipes your house out, well, then your preps are gone anyway. So in all of those most likely scenarios, you have limited support, not no support. So what we're really trying to do with food storage, energy storage, all of this stuff is sit, get ourselves into a situation where we can get by with less for a time, not necessarily get by with nothing. Like, if we're in the wilderness and lost, one of our primary concerns is shelter. You can die really fast from exposure to the elements. Well, unless your house blows to the ground, you got shelter even if the power's off. You can come up with some way to stay warm if you're inside a house in, in, in a cold climate, right? You can come, you've got shelter. 
So right there we have a huge leap forward. And, and sometimes I think we maybe need to relax on this a little bit more and think about it from, again, the entire philosophy of modern survival living is not about preparing for all the cities to burn in some James Wesley Rawls-style fiction. It's about the fact that stuff can and does go wrong, and we want to live resilient lives, being prepared for when something does go wrong, but being optimized for when nothing's wrong. So we're living at our best. It amazes me how many people that fancy themselves preppers have miserable, unhappy lives. And, and they, they actually get into kind of a fantasy that, well, when the shit is the fan, we'll be really smart and we'll be. No, you won't. If you can't do well now, you're not going to do well in the middle of a national disaster. You're not. I don't care how many beans you have. They're still just beans. You know, if that was what it took to be happy, eat your beans today. So I, I want you to come at your, your food storage goals from that standpoint. Let's start out with how long will this last the way things are right now? That's your first measure. Because I'm eating what I'm storing, storing what I'm eating. And if you realize it's like the answer is something like 90 days, but some of that stuff's going to be there for three years, it probably means you don't eat it at all and either needs to be moved into extreme long-term storage or donated to like a food drive before it goes bad. So we get that done, and then we're going to say, okay, now as we continue to expand this a little bit, how long would it last if this is what we lived on, including the stuff in the freezer? And then when we figure out that number, now let's match the redundant power so the freezer will last that long. Or have a plan for what we would do with the food. You know, if we have a gas stove, we could start canning shit if we had to, or if we have, you know, if we got a canner. So, you know, we could make biltong, we could make jerky, whatever, if we had to with what's in there so we didn't lose it if we got to a point where the, where the power was not going to work anymore. But if we, honest to God, if you have a generator and enough fuel that you can run a deep freezer for four to five hours a day for 14 days, you got nothing to worry about. You've got nothing to worry about. That food is good for two weeks, and it's very rare. It's very rare in the United States for people to go 14 days or more without power. It happens. I've seen 21 days. In the time we've been doing this show together, there were people that listened to the show that went 21 days. But they did okay. And they did it in the middle of the winter when it was freezing cold. So if they'd had it in the freezer, you could have used snow and ice from outside to help keep freezer cold. Because now it's a giant cooler. So even then, 14 days for the freezer would have got you by. You need redundant heat, etc. So... Think of it as a holistic thing. We, we need to stop thinking only MREs and dry goods and canned food. The, the stuff that we keep in our freezers is part of our food storage. It really is. And again, if you have a generator, it certainly is. So hopefully that helps you, and it hopes it gives you maybe a, a larger look. And I, what I want to finish with is this concept of 3, 7, 14, 30, 60, 90. I think this is the easiest way for people to come into preparedness. You get to where you're prepared to go three days in an emergency. You do that again in a little bit and you're at seven. Most of us, just through organization alone, could do seven days. Just by knowing what we have and knowing how to ration it all, we could get to seven days pretty easily. Then we go, that seven days is there, but it kind of sucks. So we shore it up so it's a comfortable seven days, as comfortable as it can be. Well, once we've done that, all we got to do is do it again, and we're at 14, we're at half a month. We do that again, we're technically at 28 days, really not a big stretch there to get to 30, we're at a month. Once you're at a month, you do it again, you're at 
two months. Once you're at two months, you do that one more time, you're at three. Now you're at 90 days of preparedness. And this isn't from a food alone standpoint. This is all the things we need to be relatively okay for 90 days, which includes money. Because in a lot of disasters, that doesn't mean you can't go to the store. Sometimes you can't, sometimes you can. But if the disaster is personal, which is the most common or like neighborhood small region affecting some sort of storm situation flooding, then eventually you can get passage. And even if the direct area around you, not that far away, is some sort of provision and you need money for it. And the bills are still going to come. Trust me. They're not going to be like, oh, well, there's a disaster, so we're not going to charge them for their mortgage this month. So if we build our financial reserves, 3, 7, 14, 30, 60, 90, then we are incredibly resilient, even if we just do our financial reserves that way. We do our food reserves that way and our basic energy reserves that way, and there's really not much else, you know, some sort of a reserve plan for water and water purification, and then basic health and wellness things like medications and all, and we're in a pretty good state at that point. From that point forward, everything becomes far more about how we think than the stuff that we have. And and I'm okay with the, that progression being, you know, 3, 7, 14, 30. And people that say 30 days, I think I've done enough, that's fine. Because the reality is, in a, in a, in a tough situation, you, if you're ready for 30, you could stretch it and make it work to 60. Except for your money. When it comes to your money, you need to get to a position where you have 30 days of, I'm sorry, 90 days of income. You, you need that beside, now that I mean, I'm actually okay with people say, well, I got my 90 day emergency fund. And I'm not going to put it into retirement, but I'm going to move it into some sort of liquid investment that does better. I'm okay with a third of it going in there and having a higher rate of return. And we only take it out if we need to. And as it builds, it helps compensate for like our income going up and whatever. That's, that's fine. You can put that, if you have a good financial manager, if you actually have one, that piece can go under there. But somewhere between 30 and 60 days in a savings account is the number one preparedness item missing in the lives of most, most Americans. It's the number one thing that will keep them from destroying their life. I know it sounds crazy, but sometimes it really is that simple. And all those commercials about how your money is worthless, you notice they're always selling you something and they want your money for it. So I'll leave with you with that thought today as we move on. Uh, remember, if you want to support this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that's really easy is by joining, or, or, I'm sorry, by, uh, by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the items I've reviewed on Amazon. You can see the deals of the day over there. You can check out everything. And remember, if it's there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to. But as long as you shop through tspaz, you help support us. Uh, today's item of the day is the Perfect Cook Digital Instant Read Thermometer. Now, you guys know I've been recommending this thing for a long time. Um, the reason I'm recommending it today is that you sell for $22, $21.99. And I thought it was better than anything under 50 bucks. So obviously it was the one I recommended. I have two of these. I use them all the time. I have two because I misplace them all the time because I leave one outside and what have you. Um, and I paid 22 bucks for mine. I'm not complaining about it. Never will. Um, one of them's like three years old. Still works just as good as it did the day I bought it. Uh, they have them knocked down to 12.99 right now. And it doesn't even show like as a discount. It just shows like they adjusted the price. Amazon does this from time to time. The price will just go right back up. I don't know how. It could be forever. It could be for a week. I don't know. 
But 13 bucks for one of these things is awesome. I'm pretty sure it was one of those adjustments to encourage orders because it's free shipping if it's on an order over $25. So I think they cut the price, but they're using it as a leader, like a loss leader, to get people. Like, you know, when you go to Amazon, you order something, you're always like, is there anything else I need while I'm doing this? Uh, so, you know, they're trying to push you up over 25 bucks. So the reason you want a digital thermometer is not to make sure that your steak isn't undercooked because that's not the problem America has. It's to make sure you don't overcook your steak. If you insist on cooking your steak to something like 145 degrees, it's really easy to go from 145 to 160 and ruin the damn thing really easy. Once this steak gets up over 140, it climbs in temperature a lot faster, all the way up to about 160, 170 degrees, where it is shoe leather. Stop ruining your meat. And yes, with poultry and things like that, you want to make sure you didn't undercook it, and it'll help you with that too. It works really great. opens up like a little pen knife, you know, pocket knife. You stick the probe in, and within five seconds, it tells you the temperature of, of whatever you're measuring. I use it for food, uh, you know, like steak, chicken, and stuff like that. I also use it when I'm deep frying to take temperature of my oil. Uh, it works really good for that. Uh, it's just awesome little tool for 13 bucks. Now, but they want you to order 25 bucks worth of stuff. For most of you, that won't be a problem. But I got a suggestion for you. Um, if you want to get up over 25 bucks, there's a set of Zycom uh, basting brushes I recommend. They're like nine bucks. I've had these things for years. They're made out of a solid piece of Zycom, which is like a silicon. They never break. They never fall apart. Uh, the end never falls off of them. And if you do a lot of cooking, basting is a really useful thing. I've been doing a lot of black and fish since I discovered that Paul Prudhomme's redfish magic stuff, and you, you, you brush the fish, and I've done black and chicken with it now too, with butter. And these are great for that. Uh, they won't melt if you're, you know, you basting stuff on the grill that's really hot on you. Uh, works, they work great. And if you add that, you're still under 25 bucks. Now remember, this thing, you sell for $22. Well, the other thing I would add for your kitchen in this order is two packages of the Thai dried chilies I recommend at $224. Because they're like $27 now with free shipping. And for a little bit more than the thermometer used to be, you get the thermometer, the basting brushes, and the Thai chilies. But the item of the day is the meat thermometer. If you don't have one, please get one. Because the next steak that's ruined could be yours. And we just don't want that to happen. But you can always help us out by doing what? Doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to the song of the day today, and it is by Bon Jovi, and it's called It's My Life. Again, these songs seem to work out, you know, for the show or for the day or something. It's Good song to play on your birthday, isn't it? It's my life, just the title alone. Um, this song was or an, an album that it's on were released in 2000. Uh, bon Jovi as a band had kind of taken a, a break. They hadn't released an album since 1995, so it had been five years. Uh, John Bon Jovi released a solo album in 97, but this was the first one for the band. Uh, there's a line in this song. I like when, when musicians do stuff like this. I think it's kind of cool. They reach back to earlier songs or to other musicians and mention them and tie things together. So there's a line in this that says, For Tommy and Gina who never backed down. Tommy and Gina who never backed down. You guess any idea who that is? You kind of have to be a Bon Jovi fan. If you're an 80s kid, you probably were. Uh, in 1986, their biggest hit I think they ever had was Living on a Prayer. Tommy and Gina were in that song. So they're going back to one of their songs uh, from from 14 years earlier with that line. Um, there's also a line in there 
that goes back and, 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 and hits on one of the greatest musicians of all time, Frank Sinatra. Uh, it says, like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. Um, so I think it's, I, I like stuff like that. I like when, when musicians pay, play homage to earlier and, and, in my opinion, greater uh, talent than their own. Um, to me, Bon Jovi was a good band, but I never considered them like great, like amazing. I just like their music overall. Frank Sinatra was one of the greats. So seeing like kind of that tip of the hat and mentioning there is pretty cool. Uh, and again, the reach back to uh, earlier songs with uh, Tommy and Gina. Uh, the the point of this song though is like you got to make the most out of that dash, don't you? Because it is a dash, like we talked about at the beginning today. And do something with it. And I just want to live while I'm alive. I think there's a lot of people that toward the end of their life, they're, they're kind of their biggest regret is that they didn't live while they were alive. They wasted it. There's an old saying I, that, that I kind of paraphrased, I think, and changed around, that, that youth is wasted on the young. You know, when you're old, you're like, damn, I should have done all this crap. Man, go out and do stuff. It is your life. And, and the truth is no one's going to care about it more than you do. At least no one should. You should care about your life more than anybody else. That doesn't mean that you're selfish. It means that, like, it's your life, right? Just like the song says. Good song as we approach the end of the week. We're not quite there yet. I'll be back tomorrow with the expert counsel Q&A show for the week. Could use some questions for the council. Maybe I could knock a couple of them off the Pikers list uh, this evening and uh, get an get uh, answer into me for tomorrow because I'm going to be a little short if I don't get some questions for them. Remember, if you want to... Get a, a question in for the council tomorrow, TSPC expert in the subject line. Send it in, tell me who it's for, and I'll try to de-piker the pikers. Uh, but one way or another, I will be back tomorrow to finish off the week with you. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life in times get tough or even if they don't. For the broken hearted Smile.